you would grab your Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. In today's passage, uh, Peter's going to continue to see glory in something that we very much are trying to avoid, uh, that being suffering. Yes, we are talking about that again. It just seems to be this recurring thing throughout the last two books that we have studied. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, all the way through chapter 3, verse 22, Peter seems to be connecting our suffering to our evangelism. Or as we stated a couple weeks ago, the expectation is Christ suffered bringing people to God. We will suffer bringing people to God. But in today's text, he's going to connect suffering to our sanctification. Speaking of suffering in relation to ceasing from sin. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm pretty interested in ceasing from sin. I know that Heather and my children are also very interested in me ceasing from sin. They've got a vested interest in that happening. If you understand well, excuse me, if you understand sin well, not just theologically, but personally, then you should be very interested in ceasing from sin because you know it's destructive power. Sin is defined in terms of God's law which Scripture asserts and observation affirms, is written on our hearts. That is to say that in most situations and scenarios, we really do know what we ought to do, but we lack the moral wherewithal to do that which we know. We know that we shouldn't do that, say that, buy that, watch that, etc., but the urge is often so overwhelming that despite our intrinsic knowledge of God's law, we submit instead to the law of sin and death, gratifying our flesh and destroying the life and relationships that obedience to God's law would have built up and strengthened. This means that ours is not an intellectual problem that can be solved with more information. It's a spiritual problem that only gets solved through regeneration. We must be born again, made new. We, in fact, have to be put to death so that we can be resurrected. Otherwise, we're always trying to fix an intractable sin problem with different brands of the same inadequate solution, namely our discipline and willpower. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, Paul tells us that our go-to strategy for ceasing from sin is actually bankrupt. It's a failed strategy. Our go-to strategy for dealing with our sin is to employ our willpower to stop committing that sin, right? I've been doing this, I need to stop doing that, so I'm going to try harder to not do that thing. Right? I'll get accountability partners, I'll get some software, I'll, I got, you know, I'm just going to employ my discipline and willpower in whatever form that looks like. And it seems logical enough. But here is Paul's analysis of that strategy. He says this. He says that, quote, do not taste, do not touch, do not handle, has the appearance of being a wise approach to stopping the indulgence of the flesh. But in the final analysis, that approach to handling our sin leads to what he calls, quote, self-made religion, asceticism, and severity to the body. All of which are, he says, quote, of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That is to say that simply abstaining from a given sin or sins doesn't set you free from the passions that made you want to commit that sin in the first place. So in your disciplined abstention of, say, sexual immorality, Paul anticipates that you'll end up embracing the sin of self-righteousness as you look down your nose at all those saps who lacked the moral fortitude to employ 
the discipline and willpower that you employed in order to abstain from the sin from which you're abstaining. So you'll trade sexual immorality for self-righteousness because your sinful passions are still alive and well. They're simply getting their jollies from self-aggrandizement because you closed the door to sexual immorality. You'll never win the battle against sin that way, simply by force of will. You'll just move from one form of self-indulgence to another, never really plumbing the depths enough to discover the real problem. Verse 3 of our text today says that the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That's an interesting list. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry could all be considered individually. They could be parsed out and talked about historically to show how these sins were being committed by these first century Gentiles, even as part of their ritual worship to pagan gods. And all those things would reveal why Peter constructs the list that he does. But each of these sins actually boils down to the same thing. Self-indulgent behavior that prioritizes the satisfaction of the flesh over submission to the law that God has written on our hearts. The spirit of self-indulgence is at work in the person who loses their temper all the time and snaps at everybody. The spirit of self-indulgence is at work in the person who goes over budget every month. The spirit of self-indulgence is at work in the person who engages in immoral sex. There are greater and lesser social ramifications depending on your brand of self-indulgence But the differences in manifestation and the differences in consequences don't change the underlying diagnosis. Whether it's sexual deviance, financial impropriety, or an unbridled tongue, at bottom we're dealing with a self-indulgent spirit that elevates our desires above God's commands. And Peter says, the time that is past suffices for these things. In other words, now that you're Christ's, your self-indulgence and mine needs to die. The question then is, if our discipline and willpower are insufficient to stop the indulgence of the flesh, then how do we stop the indulgence of the flesh? If our go-to strategy doesn't work, then what strategy is to be employed? If Paul's big point in Colossians chapter 2 was that I can't do it by force of will, but he, along with the rest of Scripture, maintains that it must be done, then how? How? I believe that Scripture gives us a multi-pronged approach. Our discipline and willpower is part of that approach. But it can't carry the whole load. It can't carry the whole load. That is to say that you and I aren't supposed to throw our hands up and put no effort into our holiness because, after all, our discipline and willpower won't actually work anyway, so who cares? Rather, we trust that God will meet us in our efforts to honor Him such that in addition to our willpower, God has granted His Spirit to supplement our weakness. And, to this morning's point, He has also given us suffering to fight the indulgence of the flesh. For the Spirit-empowered believer, suffering is an aid in our sanctification that helps us to cease from sin by exposing the fruitlessness of self-indulgence and the deep satisfaction that's found in obedience to God. That brings us to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 1. It says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, 
but for the will of God. He says, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourself with right thinking about suffering. So what is the right way to think about suffering? Well, I think we need to think about our suffering much the same way that we think about Christ's suffering. We think about Christ's suffering the right way. We often think about our suffering the wrong way. When we think about Christ's suffering, we think about the myriad of things that it, that it accomplishes, don't we? We think about what it does for us, what it has worked into human history, what it has done to change our status in the heavenlies. We think about its accomplishments. We ought to think about our suffering in terms of productivity as well. What does it do? What is it accomplishing? Peter's trying to arm us with that mentality. The right thinking mentality and worldview makes all the difference in regard to how you'll suffer. The Apostle Paul is actually a really great example of what Peter's getting at, that being armed with the right mentality or way of thinking about suffering. Think about when Paul was in prison writing the epistle to the Philippians. He says this about his imprisonment. This comes from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me... Now, what had happened to him is that he'd been arrested for preaching the gospel. Now he's chained to a Roman guard 24-7. Like, he doesn't get to do anything without the oversight of this guard to whom he is literally chained. And he says that that, what has happened to him, has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You see the mentality that's at work within Paul. He's looking at the product of his suffering rather than fixating on the suffering itself. He's saying, here are the things that I can enumerate that this suffering is doing. He's armed with Christ's way of thinking about suffering, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Paul was identifying his suffering's accomplishments rather than fixating on its detriments, which isn't to say that there are no detriments. It's just to say that we've been given spiritual eyes which enable us to see through the detriments to the accomplishments. You see, as far as Paul's concerned, he's not changed to that Roman guard. That Roman guard has changed to him. And he'll hear of the glory and goodness and grace of the Lord Jesus. Paul was armed with Christ's way of thinking about suffering. God's objectives had become Paul's objectives, just as Jesus came not to fulfill his own mission, but to fulfill the mission that the Father had given him. And once we bow to God's objectives, truly surrendering our lives to be used for His glory, we become untouchable. Because we can now see the victory in anything that happens to us. As we considered a few weeks ago, the greatest spread of the gospel, historically, has occurred through what? Suffering and persecution. The good news of the gospel is itself premised upon suffering, isn't it? Christ's. You see, the desert is always God's path to the promised land. That's not just a narrative in the Old Testament. It's the arc of all of redemptive history, even our own personal histories of redemption. It's always the path, desert to promised land. So once we bow to this, once we're armed with this way of thinking, our resilience becomes incredible. But now, notice the connection between suffering and ceasing from sin that Peter's making. 
This is where things get really interesting. Peter says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Peter seems to be saying that suffering in the flesh provides some benefit to our soul. Suffering is a weapon that God uses against our self-indulgence. Paul told us that our willpower is insufficient. That's the Colossians 2 that we referenced earlier. But Peter's telling us how God comes alongside our willpower and helps it along. But before considering what that means and how it works, let's first identify what Peter is doing. He's extolling the virtues of suffering, isn't he? He's been doing that throughout the entire epistle. He's talking about the virtues and the benefits that suffering confers to the child of God. He's working to arm these believers with Christ's mind on the matter of suffering so that they can withstand the suffering that they're currently going through and will continue to experience. He's doing this because he knows that they have to know that their suffering means something. They have to know that their suffering is meaningful. I'll never forget when some friends of Heather and I were pregnant with their first child. They were, as you can imagine, very excited. Everything was progressing well. Mom and baby were healthy until just before the due date. Just weeks before, after nine months of problem-free progress, the baby's heartbeat was gone. So this couple had to schedule the delivery of their fully developed dead baby boy. They hired a photographer. They put clothes on their son. They called him by his name. And they took family photos. Sometime after that, I learned that in some hospitals is actually standard protocol to have exactly that kind of ceremony with a stillborn baby because it's deemed psychologically necessary for the mother to see, touch, handle, and remember the fruit of her labor. You made a baby. Look at him. Hold him. Hold his little hands. Squeeze him. Take pictures with him. She needs to see that it wasn't fruitless. She needs to hold the fruit. Because without that experience of seeing what you made, you're just left with the suffering and no concept of its results. And Peter's telling these believers in as many ways as he can, your suffering isn't meaningless. It's hurtful, but it's not futile. He's told them that their suffering would conform them to the image of Christ. He's told them that it would help to reach the Gentiles who are still trapped in idolatry. And today he's telling them that their suffering will actually even help them win the battle against their own sin, which seeks to destroy their abundance. All of this is Peter saying, it's not meaningless. It's purposeful. It's powerful and it's productive. We ought to think about suffering this way. That's how you arm yourself with the right thinking about suffering. We ought to think about suffering like we think about surgery. The necessary ones, not the superfluous ones that most surgeons want you to have. No one argues that it's pleasant, but your circumstances may just make it necessary. So how is suffering surgery that cuts out our sin? 
How does suffering supplement our willpower and our discipline in the battle against self-indulgence? What's Peter getting at when he says that the one who suffers in the flesh ceases from sin? Well, two things that I can think of that I believe come to us from the pages of Scripture. One is that suffering helps us to see. And two is that suffering shows us what is solid and what is sand. Suffering helps us to see and suffering shows us what is solid and what is sand. So first, suffering helps us to see. In Psalm 119, verses 67 and 68, David says this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. David had been wandering from obedience into self-indulgence, a path that he believed would be satisfying, but that God knew would be devastating. So God afflicted him, bringing suffering into his life to cause him to veer back toward obedience. God is good and does good. So to stray from obedience to him and into obedience to us, or self-indulgence, is to walk away from what is actually good and satisfying. It is suffering, often, that helps us to see that. The difference between satisfaction and self-indulgence is that one is achieved by obeying God's law, which leads us to life, while the other is achieved by breaking God's law, which promises to be satisfying and then robs us of the satisfaction that it promised. The self-indulgence of following the passions of your flesh is a shallow substitute for the satisfaction that comes from obeying God's will. Now, our cultural moment provides no shortage of examples that bear witness to this fact that misalignment with God's word and God's order actually destroys us, despite the fact that in the moment we think it's going to satisfy us. But for example, it's clear that God made us for work. That's an incredibly clear thing even in the early sections of Scripture. The first gift that God gives to Adam after the gift of life is what? The gift of work. Here's what I want you to do. Here's your task. Here's your responsibility. Meaningful, productive work is God's prescription for mankind. But we live in an age of lethargy, shunning God's design and filling up our lives with meaningless entertainment as much as we can under the guise of self-care. We care for ourselves by disregarding God's design. What are the results, though, of this substitution as we've traded meaningful work for meaningless self-indulgence? Well, the result is that the most comfortable and wealthy people in the world are the most miserable. We get the most counseling. We take the most antidepressant meds. Because it turns out that if you fill your life up with meaningless things, you will feel meaningless. A shocking revelation, isn't it? Fill up your life with meaningless things and you will feel meaningless, despite all of the ways that you're indulging yourself. God didn't wire you to indulge yourself. He wires you to pour yourself out for others. So when we work against his design, rather than submitting to it, we break things, not least of which is ourselves. But the vast chasm between the satisfaction of obeying God and the bankruptcy of self-indulgence is often lost on us until something significant happens to us and exposes the insignificance of our self-indulgent pursuits. 
So you don't notice what a horrible trade you're making when you decide every night you're going to send your kids to bed early so that you can watch your favorite television show. Like you just don't realize what a horrible trade you've made until your kid gets diagnosed with cancer. Now you see. Now you see. What did I trade? What did I... I was indulging myself in that moment. I wanted to just get out of my face, please. It's been a long day. I just want to zone out in front of the television. That's what, I, that's what my soul needs right now. That's my self-care. No, that's self-indulgence. But what will ever awaken us to that fact if nothing significant enough enters the frame of our lives to awake us from our slumber? Then we can see. Now we can see what matters and what doesn't, what's fleeting and what's forever, what's meaningful and what's meaningless. So many of our sinful and idolatrous pursuits are actually owing to spiritual blindness that suffering corrects. When crisis hits, what's meaningful and satisfying and what's superficial and self-indulgent becomes exceedingly clear. And the goodness of God's design becomes detectable to us. But before that crisis comes, we're often all too content to spend our time, to spend our lives developing, building, and cultivating the superficial, all the while procrastinating, ignoring, or minimizing the meaningful, while simultaneously wondering why we're so dissatisfied all the time. So suffering helps us to see through the veneer of self-indulgence to the satisfaction of obeying Christ. Second, Suffering reveals what's solid and what is sand. We're familiar, I'm sure, with the parable of the man who builds his house on the rock versus the man who builds his house on the sand. In terms of application, the thing to note here is that the same storm hits both houses. The same storm hits both houses. It isn't that if you build wisely and obediently that God rewards you by letting you... Eh, does not have to go through that storm. No, the reward is that when the storm passes, your house is still there. Maybe some windows are out. Maybe the screen door came off. Maybe there's some superfluous things that got knocked off in the wind, but your house is still there. God sends storms or suffering in order to keep us in this space where we can tell the difference between what is sand and what is solid. The storm that is designed to destroy the unrighteous is designed to purify the righteous. That's the grace of it. For us, it's a house cleaning, not a demolition, you see. Hebrews 12, 26 says that God shakes things up in order to reveal that which cannot be shaken. It's like every now and again, God wants to send a strong wind just to blow everything away that can be blown away, such that all the things that don't blow away, we know, okay, here are the things that actually mattered in my life. I'm going to cling to those things. But a life built on sinful self-indulgence is a life built on sand. Everything goes. When the storm comes, everything washes away because none of it had weight, gravitas, or glory to hold it in place. It's like in the Old Testament when Israel began to worship idols, the idols of the surrounding nations. God would send calamity upon them, generally in the form of foreign invasion. And he would say to them through his prophets, surely your idols will save you. 
You've invested your time and your treasure and your life into them. You've built your life around them. Trust in them now. What can they do for you? What can our idols do for us when the storm hits? What can the things that we value so highly when everything's going well actually do for us when it all turns? Sometimes in His grace, the Lord sends the storm to sweep away all that can be swept away so that we will not be able to pursue that which isn't worth pursuing anyway. This is a kindness. And God is doing these things in the lives of these first century Gentile believers through their persecution in order to help them make a clean break with the meaningless self-indulgence that characterized their lives before Christ saved them. We get that very clearly in verse 3 when Peter moves from suffering, helping us to cease from sin, to the particular list of sins that he's hoping this suffering is going to help them put to death. So verse 3, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He says the time that is past suffices. Peter's declaring that there are things that belonged to their lives before they acknowledged Jesus as Lord that must now be excised from their lives. And he just lists for them what some of those things are for the Gentile converts that he's addressing. The question for us this morning should be obvious enough. What are those things for you? What are those things for me? And are we ready to part with them? Or perhaps you had parted with them for some period of time, but have recently wandered back into their embrace. What are those sinful, self-indulgent patterns and behaviors that are still present in your life? And it's time to say with Peter, the time that has passed suffices. The time that has passed suffices. It's enough. I'm done hiding that. I'm done having to apologize for that. I'm done wasting time on that. I'm done. The time that's passed suffices. Christ calls me to be finished with those things so that I can give myself to his things. It's time to declare an end to sinful, superficial self-indulgence. However, that may be manifesting itself in your life. But then this brings us back to a point of tension, doesn't it? Because how did we start this message? (laughs) I I can't seem to make that a definitive declaration of the end. Because every time I identify these things and some guy seems to be yelling exuberantly at the front about putting away sin, I have that moment where things rise up in me. I'm feeling like, yes, I know that needs to die. But every time I try to put it to death, two weeks later, I do it again. And I think you just told me in Colossians 2 that Paul anticipates that that's going to be the case. So why are we eating lunch yet? What's the point of any of this? See, we aren't declaring this end of our sin arrogantly, heroically, or independently. This isn't don't taste, don't touch, don't handle. It's not what we're talking about. We're not standing on the summit of Mount Zion with our ichthys cape waving in the wind as we look down at everyone else who couldn't make the climb with us. That's not what this is. We're declaring that Christ's grace is sufficient for us. That's the declaration that His Spirit will be powerfully at work in us. We're declaring that He'll order our circumstances in such a way as to refine us. We're declaring that in Him we'll make an end of our sin 
And that includes the sin of self-made religion, wherein we make ourselves the sanctifier. We'll get more specific in verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He says that they're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. Now, the Greek from which flood of debauchery is translated literally means uncontrolled indulgence in the seeking of pleasure. Think hedonism. Uncontrolled indulgence in the seeking of pleasure. Now, this manifests itself for them in wild parties and casual sex, as Peter identified for those Gentiles to whom he's writing. But it can also manifest itself in letting autoplay on Netflix have its way with you until one in the morning. The impulse behind these two things is not all that dissimilar. Open gratification. Just let it come. Uncontrolled, unrestrained. Yeah, I know I've got things to do tomorrow, but one more episode. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Peter tells those coming out of this profligate lifestyle of self-indulgence to expect relational trouble when they begin to live life differently. He says that the world will be surprised when we don't join them. But they aren't pleasantly surprised. They're maligned in the kind they're, they're surprised in the kind of way that makes us or makes them malign us. Living among sinners without participating in their sin pains their consciences because God's law is also written on their hearts. So they seek to justify themselves by maligning us. Sadly, this is even a frequent occurrence within evangelical circles. There are those who want to wink at sin, embrace the world's norms, and pretend that the answer to Paul's rhetorical question, what has light to do with darkness, is quite a bit, actually. When this crowd encounters a Christian who's serious about ceasing from sin and pursuing holiness, there's almost an immediate accusation launched mentally, if not verbally. You know what it is? Legalist. Legalist. If you don't look like the world, talk like the world, educate your kids like the world, or watch the programming of the world, then in the minds of most professing Christians, you're struggling with legalism. This must be the case, because if you're not struggling with legalism, then they must be struggling with worldliness, and that's an impossibility. <laughs> it's impossibility. So to insulate themselves from the indictment that our holy living is to them, they must recategorize that holiness as something, something else. You're a religious extremist of some kind, which is to do what? It is to malign you, isn't it? But Peter reassures them that God has it well in hand, as they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. And now we'll close with verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now this may sound like a, a strange verse, and certainly there are those who do strange things with it. Asserting that Peter's talking about people having a second opportunity to embrace Christ after they've died, or others who just thinking, ah, that sounds weird, let me make it sound less weird. He's talking about spiritually dead people. That's all, that's all this is, right? Don't, nothing to see here, whatever. But truthfully, I believe that Peter is addressing Christians who had already died, 
under the judgment of men. An interpreted rendering of that text might say this, For this reason the gospel was preached to those who are now dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. The gospel was preached to those who are now dead, so that even though they experienced persecution and judgment, the persecution and judgment of men in the flesh who judged them according to the flesh, they will be vindicated after death at judgment and resurrection. This verse refers to those believers who embraced the gospel and then began living consistently with that gospel. And in response to their faithfulness, they were, as Peter mentions in verse 4, maligned. They died persecuted. They died shamed, having been judged in the flesh by those who judge according to the flesh. But that judgment isn't the judgment that matters. That's Peter's point. That judgment that's passed by those in the flesh is not the final word. So here again, we find Peter encouraging them in the face of suffering as he helps them to look through the suffering itself to the reward on the other side of it. Now, I believe that the suffering of verse 4 is the suffering to which God calls almost every believer. It's the kind of suffering that helps us to break our relationship with one of our most common sins. See, we're not all called to suffer poverty on the mission field. We're not all called to suffer martyrdom under state persecution. We're not all called to suffer in underground church scenarios. And yet, Paul says to Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So how? In what way are all Christians called to suffer some form of persecution? I believe that it's the disapproval of men as we insist on following God. That's the kind of suffering to which every believer is called. In seeking the, the approval of God, we will find the disapproval of man. And there's a suffering that takes place in us as we experience man's disapproval. Because one of the primary things that drives our lives is the approval of men, isn't it? Which is why God has such a vested interest in taking it from us, lest we build our lives on the sandy foundation that is others' opinions of what you do, how you do it, what you say, how you dress, whatever it is. And so he has designed the world in such a way that when we live his way, we get rebuked for it, we get excoriated for it. We get maligned for it. Because what's he taking in sending that storm? He's taking from us something that we needed to never build our lives on in the first place. And this is his kindness. Let's pray.